This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. I'm delighted to welcome you here all today on behalf of Cambridge Assessment. The group, which is the Department of the University of Cambridge, is made up of three exam boards, OCR in the UK, in the UK Cambridge International Examinations, and Cambridge English for Speakers of Other Languages, together with the largest research capacity of its kind in the world. Today, we'll be hearing some, about some of that research on the subject of critical thinking, work that was brought into being by the group's chief executive himself, who has a direct and abiding interest in this issue, as it aligns closely with definitions of education and with the heart of Cambridge assessment itself. Some ground rules, if you would. This is a seminar, not a question and answer session. If you want to pick up on a point from somebody else in the audience, feel free. If you want to make a statement, not ask a question, do so. All I ask is that you do it through the chair, me, and that you make your points as concisely as this complex issue allows. I will cut people off if I think they've made their point already. <laughs> Secondly, you will note that we are filming the discussion for the benefit of that much wider audience that can't make it here today. Uh, and we'll be able to watch it online in about a week's time. Please ignore the cameras. Uh, please make sure, however, if you're asked to speak, that you wait for a microphone to arrive. That way, your voice will be heard online as opposed to just in this room. And would you please give your name and the name of your institution? Thirdly, this is not about current syllabuses or specifications, supporting material for them, questions or mark schemes. This seminar is about the concepts and philosophy of critical thinking by which I mean things like transferability, teachability, models for delivery, taxonomy, rationale, and so forth. Finally, you will all know, because you'll all have read them, that there are two academic papers online at cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Presentations delivered here today will also be available later on the same online space that this seminar will be. Of more immediate use, you will find in your packs three critical thinking fact sheets that I happen to know are going to be quite heavily referenced today and suggest that you extract them now rather than the middle of somebody's speech. So, the first to introduce us to the research background is Beth Black. Beth joined the research division at Cambridge Assessment in 2005 in order to develop interests in assessment. Prior to her appointment, she was a senior teacher of psychology at a large sixth form college in Cambridge with experience in examining and specification design. In addition to critical thinking research, Beth has worked on a wide range of projects, including marker reliability, standard setting and maintaining techniques, assessment instruments over time, and non-standard English in GCSE students. She brings a wealth of expertise. Beth. Overview of some of the research we've done at Cambridge Assessment. Um, 
you know, if you, if you want to ask more questions about it later or look at the papers online, you'll get more detail. But um, time, time today doesn't allow for um, more in depth. But hopefully it'll give you a flavour of what we've been up to in terms of critical thinking. Now, when I first was asked about um, critical thinking and doing some research, you know, our, our, our immediate issue was, well, what is it? So I thought I would start off with a little example um, which came to me um, just before Christmas. Um, I was listening to the radio one morning and um, Liam Donaldson was on talking about a Department of Health publication. Um, and we're just going to listen to his interview, I hope. Uh, we're going to see his interview. Tools and 
Watch out for his, you know, his overuse of rhetoric, middle-class obsession, mass-medicate young children. Um, you could also point out that he contradicted himself here, said there's no harm in it really, but then says mm, they're likely to become problem drinkers in adult life. And also he's conflated, and this is really the problem with how he treated the evidence, children who drink at an early age, regardless of context, with, with a very specific context and situation of children drinking in their, in their own home with their family in a sort of controlled fashion. Um, so perhaps I don't need to worry so much. Anyway, so this is an example of critical thinking. But it, it says to us, you know, critical thinking can you know, sit up, be questioning, be inquiring, don't just accept things at face value, and have some intellectual courage in questioning what, what, what you're presented with. So moving on then, we're going to talk about the, um, some of the research of assessment. There's four projects. Um, we're going to start off with the definition and taxonomy. Um, so, so this, um, a lot of UK experts were involved, um, some of which are here today, and Thompson, Joe Chislett. Um, and, and the idea of this work was in response to, first of all, the proliferation of qualifications and tests in the UK not just within the clinical assessment, I think we'll see on fact sheet too, a list of some of the qualifications that are run out of the UK. But we also have some questions about the nature of critical thinking in relation to these tests. <coughs> but we wanted to make sure that what we were offering in clinical assessment was coherent and have integrity. And so this seems like the most important way to go about validating our tests and qualifications to make sure we have a very clear idea of the construct of critical thinking. So we, we derived a definition. Again, I think this is in on your fact sheet, more about fact sheet one. I won't go through every word, it's just really sort of awareness. Um, it looks like this. It's not a short definition. Um, we highly identified it with um, analytical thinking, this is a fundamental skill in critical thinking, being able to dissect an argument, um, attack information. Um. We strongly equate it with rationality. Critical thinking, in one sense, is quite ubiquitous. Um, it's in, it's in you know, everything that attempts to be rational. But it's not passive, it's you know, very active, meticulous, rigorous, proactive. And we identified it as an academic discipline. That means to say that it can have explicit, it can be taught explicitly and purposefully. And open-mindedness is an important feature of good critical thinking. It allows us to take not only other people's points of view, but also to think about our own and make sure that our own decisions are well supported. Um, we also went further, again, I'm not expecting to read this other slide, I think it's um, again on actually to one, one side. Um, we talked about the skills and sub-skills in critical thinking and how they can be classified. And this helps us all to audit, if you like, and our tests and qualifications in clinical assessment. Okay, critical thinking in A-levels, I think this research is been um, quite some interest to schools. Our key question was, do candidates who've taken critical thinking AS level perform better in their A levels in their other subjects? So for one 
policy analysis, we identify candidates who've done well at A S level critical thinking and go for grade A or B. So we knew that they were good at critical thinking. And we matched them for prior academic attainment in terms of their GCSE um, scores. And then we compared their A level results. And we, we found that the critical thinking group, on average, had scored one grade higher across their three A-level grades. So the non-CT group were, on average, coming out with ADD, and the um, CT group were coming out with AAD. So it's one, one grade. Um, we also looked at individual subjects as well. And we can see that um, across the range of arts and humanities and sciences, there are benefits to the CT group in terms of their performance at A level, even in some surprising things like maths. Um, perhaps I should just say we did do another, another analysis, more complex analysis, that I haven't got time to talk about here, which looks at all A level grades and critical thinking. We found the benefit for people who've got past grades in critical thinking. Okay, moving on to critical thinking in schools, I think this paper's on the website, so you may, may or may not have heard it. We were interested in how critical thinking was delivered. Who's teaching critical thinking? Given that nobody's got a degree in critical thinking, and yet they've got to stand in front of a class and, and, uh, and imbue children's critical thinking, who's, who's managing to do this? And what do teachers think about critical thinking? So these are some of our key questions. Um, we have 236 respondents representing about a quarter of all schools and colleges offering critical thinking in the UK. And uh, you know, lots of qualitative and quantitative data. Um, I can only sort of skate over it, but the qualitative data was you know, incredibly rich and illuminating. So, in terms of who's teaching critical thinking, um, this, this graph looks at first first, second and third subjects of the respondents. So we can see on these sort of green lines the sort of first subjects, and we can see that um, philosophy and religious studies is the most popular type of teacher, if you like, um, for teaching critical thinking, English and drama, governance and politics, history, but also science, um, geography and so on. So teachers are coming from a range of disciplines, and I'm sure the teachers sitting here today represent a whole, a whole range of faculties in schools. What's also interesting about this graph is that we can see that most teachers said that critical thinking was their second or third subject and not their first subject. And this is a, an implication for how teachers can prioritise their work in schools if, if this if, you know, CT further down the list and they've got much more contact time in their first subject. We also asked teachers how much time they devoted to each AS course, uh, guided learning hours, um, a range of responses, mainly going from zero, I think in one case only, um, but that might have been a data entry issue, I don't know, um, <laughs> to 160. But most teachers would deliver on critical thinking in 80 hours or less, which is less than the guided learning hours advised in specifications, and it's less than other mainstream AS subjects. Um, so the, the implications here, the student experience, I think, and perhaps this is something that our discussion later will um, 
Then many talk about how it's a sort of a life skill. We're trying to set up our workforce for the 21st century. Our students have got to be able to cope with huge flux of information and making decisions based on sound processes. But a lot of them talked about the transferability of critical thinking into other A-level subjects. Um, how it benefited their, their student performance in their own subjects and the way that they could approach those subjects. Okay, finally I'm going to talk about the Critical Thinking Glossary, which is our current project at the moment. Again, um, there's UK experts, some John and Thompson, have, have worked together to, to help us produce this. It's really the culmination of the work and the definition of taxonomy. Um, critical thinking, I think, like, like some subjects, but maybe more so, has definitional problems. You know, people are always arguing about, about what this term means and what that term means. And so we're hoping to provide something that's illuminating and authoritative. Um, so, for example, here's just one of the entries on ad hoc. So we've got a very short definition and then we've got a full discussion and then an illuminating example. And we're hoping that um, we'll publish this in a sort of traditional book format, possibly other ways as well. Um, and it will, it will be useful to anybody who wants to improve their thinking power. So to conclude, um, I came to that we've done some conceptual work, if you like, on the definition of taxonomy in the glossary. We've also done some work on the impact of critical thinking, both in terms of its influences in A-levels A, A and um, white forms in A-levels, and how it's being embraced in schools. And we also need to think about some future challenges, I think. Um, HE recognition, I think, is key. I think critical thinking is at a pivotal time, perhaps at a crossroads. And for it to continue to grow and be embraced, it probably means that credentialising from HE institutions in terms of students being able to use critical thinking towards getting placed at university. And I think there are still issues for training resources in schools um, that schools need to think about how they resource these courses, who the teachers are, and how they can best support it to deliver more powerful programs that are more powerful. The teachers in the survey clearly saw critical thinking as a powerful educational force. And if we can support teachers more, I think it's possible we can see greater benefits to wider academic performance and value added. Thank you very much. Thank you, Beth. <laughs> Taxonomy, I always think, sounds very, very boring, but the fact of the matter is that many of the arguments in this, um, in this field stem from, and you've just listened to the arguments, two people talking about fundamentally different things and coming to, unsurprisingly, fundamentally different conclusions. Next up... Oh God. Um, <laughs> there's technology for you. Uh, next up is uh, uh, Professor Stephen Higgins, who's Professor of Education at Durham University. Before working in higher education, Steve taught in primary schools in the Northeast, where his interest in children's thinking and learning developed. He's published widely in the area of the development of thinking in schools for both academics, such as systematic reviews on the impact of thinking skills approaches, and for teachers, such as thinking through primary teaching. 
He's advised the Department for Education and Skills. That shows how old he is. Department of Education and Skills. Been three different things since then. Uh, on the impact of thinking skills approaches in schools and compiled a database of thinking skills resources which is published on the standards site. Other interests are the effective use of digital technologies in education and the work of the North American pragmatists. But he's going to stick to critical thinking. Oh, certainly are. Um, I'm going to, only going to be able to make brief comments today, but I'd like to pick up a couple of themes from the um, seminar. My research interests are very much in the area uh, that's relevant today in terms of both of taxonomies, uh, the impact of thinking skills, approaches, critical thinking in particular, and also the best way it can be taught and uh, developed in schools. Uh, but to start off with, I also have a kind of similar anecdotal example bemoaning the state of critical thinking in the UK. And it, it comes from this morning's news about wealthier people live longer. Um, and the implication on the news story I heard seemed to be that if we increase the minimum wage, we'll somehow uh, solve the problem of people's health problems. Uh, and also, I, it got me thinking, well, I suppose that also argues actuarially that uh, wealthier people should get cheaper life insurance, which seems inequitable in terms of values. Uh, but that, for me, encapsulates the issues in critical thinking. Because for me, it's the application of logic and values and the relationship between the two that is, at times, extremely complex. Taxonomies. Uh, I probably know more than is healthy for a person in casual conversation to know about thinking taxonomies. Uh, it was part of a project at Newcastle University a, a few years ago where we uh, analysed and summarised over 50 different taxonomies of thinking in terms of instructional design, uh, cognition, but also critical thinking. So uh, don't engage me in conversation later about that unless you really want a detailed description of those. Uh, it's certainly clear to me that they're essential for mapping, for planning, for teaching, for developing consensus about what's meant in a particular area of education. I don't see how you can do that without starting to be clear analytically about what's involved in a particular subject and the way particular skills are conceptualized. And certainly the work of the, uh, in North America that um, Beth cites in, in her study, uh, looking at Halpern, Ennis, uh, Paul's work, there's a huge amount of work in, in developing taxonomies of critical thinking uh, that's already out there. And, and I think it's necessary for Cambridge to develop some clarity around particularly what they mean for their particular uh, assessment. There is, however, I think, an issue uh, if we look at the uh, history of uh, the use of taxonomies in that all of those experts in those fields have struggled to produce valid and reliable measures on the basis of their taxonomies. Because the, the problem for me with taxonomies, they're, they're great at one level for clarity, but they actually make it quite difficult to assess something like critical thinking, which for me is a combination of logic and values. Uh, the judgments involved are complex, and at times we certainly don't want to reduce those to a simple set of criteria or tick list. You know, I did synthesis today, I can now synthesize, it's a skill I never have to be taught again. It's just not ever going to be like that. But developing your understanding of what that might mean, how uh, causation might play out in history or science... Uh, would be an interesting dimension to, I think, a more informed curriculum. So not only do you start to be able to articulate the skills that you're learning, 
we can also start to articulate those disciplinary perspectives. But then I am perhaps a bit of a dreamer. My, my advice, I guess, in this area would be to look at taxonomies that also try to re-piece things together into a whole, like the solo taxonomy, which looks at relational complexity. So you don't just look at the individual criteria and whether they're present or not, but you look at the way those different parts relate to each other. There was some interesting work done in the late 1990s with QCA uh, in geography using that particular taxonomy, for example, in analysing pupils' short answers, short responses. Rather than just giving ticks for whether something was there or not, the relation of the elements was also given value. So that, that again, would be uh, one of my indicators. The other, uh, and this is usually the academic criticism of um, thinking skills, is are, are they really skills? Is it critical thinking skills we're talking about? Or is it more to do with dispositions uh, and approaches to the way you think about your orientation towards topics? And certainly the evidence in the literature uh, suggests to me that uh, just because you can think doesn't mean that you will and I'm sure we can all think of people in our own experience that we know are accomplished thinkers but don't necessarily bring their powers of thinking to bear in situations where they think they ought to. So I think uh, under, underpinning what Beth was saying is also a desire in education that we develop more critical thinkers, not just in terms of skills, but in terms of their dispositions and orientation towards the work they're doing. Okay, evidence of impact. Uh, again, an, another area where I've done a, a fair amount of research. Um, my take on this uh, as a headline level is that there's consistent positive evidence of the benefits for uh, articulating, uh, making clear, uh, expressing clearly thinking objectives in teaching and learning. Uh, and that actually there's stronger evidence uh, in this area than there is for most educational interventions. Um, any academics in the audience might be slightly horrified that I put up John Hattie's book because it's methodologically questionable. But I, I do admire what he's tried to do in setting out kind of the vista, if you like, of educational research and trying to quantify the relationships within it. So he uses a particular technique called meta-analysis. Uh, and if you look at thinking interventions, they're distributed towards the higher end of impact which is, I guess, the key point that I'd like to make. So I, I take that from his work. Um, I also research in the area of uh, technology, digital technologies, ICT, whatever the kind of current phrase is. Uh, and certainly it's the case that the effect sizes in the area of technology, which is a society, I suppose globally, were prepared to invest in extremely heavily, are much, much lower than they are in the area of developing and making thinking explicit. So I just kind of throw that out as something of cultural value that's not just in the UK, but certainly the whole of the Western world. We value technology and want to embed it in education without robust evidence. The evidence, I think, is much stronger in the area of developing thinking, yet it's not a, a, an area we seem to be able uh, to identify investment for. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit in the last couple of minutes about the difference between cognitive and curricular benefits, because again, I think this is uh, quite important, uh, and it's to do with the, I suppose, final theme is, should critical thinking, should thinking be taught as a separate subject, or should it be taught embedded through different subjects? 
The academic consensus for a number of years has been that it should be embedded, uh, partly to do with theories like situated cognition, uh, the difficulty of kind of identifying transfer, transfer also arguments about disciplinary perspectives. But I'd see that very much as being clustered around theoretical perspectives on learning. If you actually look at the evidence in the literature in terms of intervention studies, the research evidence is very clear that it's much stronger for the discrete or separate teaching of thinking. Now, of course, this is where this topic becomes extremely complex because, of course, it's much easier to design a research study where you have very clear teaching of a thinking package and you compare that with uh, standard or normal lessons. It's much harder to design an intervention and test it robustly where thinking is effectively embedded in uh, curriculum subjects. So it may be also something to do with the nature of uh, the challenge of investigating this clearly. Um, the evidence, I think, is quite strong. A uh, recent meta-analysis in the American Education uh, Research Journal, Clower and Fye, looked at the impact of teaching inductive reasoning, and it was actually stronger in terms of its impact on curriculum learning, as tested by subject tests, than it was in terms of uh, IQ or intelligence tests. So there's clearly an impact that's quite strong from the teaching of e explicit thinking that does go more widely than the lessons in which it's taught. That may not be a fashionable academic view, but I think the evidence is out there. Anyone who questions that, please feel free to email me and I can send you what I think is the evidence in that area. From a kind of practical and personal point of view, I think it's very clear that we need both. That there are times when it's useful to teach skills and capabilities explicitly to give learners a language to talk about what they're learning and to understand what it is that they can do, but that we also need to teach for application and embedding because some of the skills do start to pan out differently in different subjects. The notion of evidence isn't the same across the curriculum spectrum. So uh, teaching the, the importance of evidence uh, in a critical thinking course and then the application of it across the curriculum seems to me to be the obvious way to go. I guess I'd like to end with a final question that I'm sure will stimulate some d debate, uh, partly uh, coming from uh, Beth's talk, although I guess I'm being a bit playful. Do we really want to teach critical thinking because it helps raise attainment in other subjects? Or do we want to teach critical thinking because it's an essential component of education in a de democratic society? I just kind of throw that away as my final comment. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Steve, and well, well to time. Um, right, um, next we have Richard Wainer, who's Head of Education and Skills at the Confederation of British Industry. Um, sometimes we feel that education spend a little bit too much time talking to each other, so we always like to get somebody, some people in from the outside, the, the garden, as it were, and give their perspective. Richard leads on the CBI's policy and lobbying activity on education and skills issues. He has a wide-ranging remit. Uh, we were covering some of it downstairs. Huge remit, covering 14 to 19 FE, HE, workforce skills, and so on. He previously had responsibility for CBI policy on other employment-related areas, including employment regulation on the labour market, employee and union relations, family-friendly policies, 
employment tribunals and dispute resolution. So he probably has quite a lot of active uh, uh, engagement with critical thinking. Thank you, Bennett. Um, as you probably gathered from um, Bennett's introduction, uh, unlike Beth and Steve, I'm not a critical, a critical thinking expert um, by any means. Um, but what I want to do in the 10 minutes I've got this afternoon is to uh, try and put the importance of critical thinking uh, skills in the wider context uh, from the perspective of the skills employers and individuals are going to need uh, to succeed in the labour market. Um, so first, if I may, I want to start off um, pretty broadly, probably as broad as you can get, uh, looking at the global skills challenge. Um, so I think the global skills challenge has changed uh, beyond recognition over the last 20 years uh, with significant social uh, and economic consequences. Uh, I think there are two main drivers of this radical change. First is uh, globalisation, clearly, and the second is uh, technology. So first, uh, globalisation. Over the past two decades, uh, according to the International Monetary Fund, uh, the effective global labour market, uh, effective global labour force, sorry, has risen fourfold as China, India, uh, the former Eastern Bloc of countries, has entered into the global economy. And this growing pool of labour is being accessed by uh, advanced economies uh, like the UK through a range of different channels, uh, through imports of final goods, offshoring of the production of intermediate goods and services, and of course through mass immigration. And while most of the absolute increase in the global labour supply over this period uh, has consisted of less educated uh, workers, again according to the IMF, the relative supply of workers with higher education has increased by about 50% over the last quarter of a century. The second important driver arises from technology. This feeds into the way uh, our economies work in two different ways. The first is that vast improvements in computing power and communications, coupled with uh, the progressive removal of restrictions on uh, cross-border trade and capital flows, have made it possible for production processes to be uh, unbundled and located further from the final market for a growing range of goods and services. Increasingly, the job gets done uh, wherever in the world it can be undertaken uh, most efficiently and at lowest cost. Technology has made it possible to integrate the increased pool of uh, global labour and create something like a global labour market for it. The other big impact of technological uh, development has been uh, on the workforces of developed economies like the UK. This arises from the way that computers and ICT act as a substitute for unskilled labour, but tend to complement and improve the performance of skilled labour. I think to see what this means in practice, you only have to go around a modern factory floor. Uh, you'll notice how few workers uh, there are in control of the actual processes and the sophisticated equipment which makes it possible for them to get the job done. Indeed, I think it's been the improvements in technology, even more than the impact of globalisation, that have squeezed out unskilled jobs in our economy. Our manufacturing sector, for example, has been especially exposed. British manufacturing uh, lost a very large number, uh, upwards of a million, uh, of largely unskilled jobs in the 80s and 90s. But the productivity of the survivors was, of necessity, radically improved. So that in motor vehicle manufacturing, for example, uh, we now have uh, one of the most, some of the most efficient plants uh, in Europe. And a recent study by the Department for Business uh, showed that the manufacturing workforce, uh, through much, though, though much reduced in numbers, has a significantly greater proportion of skilled workers than it did 10 years ago, including a rise in the absolute number of graduates employed. 
think one result of all this, uh, and similar changes in other parts of the economy, is that there is very high correlation in the UK between a young person's educational achievement and their employment prospects. The Bank of England, for example, produced uh, some striking data to illustrate this fact last year. In the eight years up to the uh, recession, most of all the new jobs uh, created went to people with higher education qualifications. And during a period of rising employment across the board, the job prospects of young people with no educational qualifications actually declined. By 2005, they, they were five times as likely to be unemployed as their more uh, skilled counterparts, one of the highest such ratios in the developed world. So globalization, together with skills-based technical change, is transforming the composition of the labor market. If anything, the recent recession has increased the importance of educating a large proportion of the population to a much higher standard uh, than in the past, ensuring they have the skills to succeed in a continually evolving labor market. Now, there's been a long debate about skills in the UK, and more particularly about the shortage of skills and how to address that issue. Much of the debate has concentrated on uh, technical skills, the, sub the specific skills that, needed, that are needed to carry out certain specialist tasks. Certainly, we at the CBI uh, continue to highlight the vital importance of science, technology, engineering, and math skills uh, to our future economic growth. But increasingly, we're seeing greater emphasis on the more generic skills individuals need uh, to adapt to this change. Now, we consulted a few years ago widely amongst uh, CBI membership to define exactly what we meant uh, by these generic employability skills. Uh, and we define them as self-management, team working, business and customer awareness, communication and literacy, application of numeracy, IT, and problem solving, a core element of, of critical thinking, uh, which is obviously the focus of today's event. Now, it's clear that there's an increasing need for a higher proportion of employees to have well-developed critical thinking skills. Employees, of course, must have a solid foundation of basic literacy and computational skills necessary for uh, getting, keeping, and doing well in a job. But simply having the knowledge of uh, and the ability to perform these skills uh, is often not enough. Workers need the thinking skills vital to putting the basic and technical skills to work. The ability to think, reason, and make sound decisions is crucial for employees wanting to do well and advance. A person who can think critically, act logically, and evaluate situations to make decisions and solve problems is a valuable asset in the workplace. If other resources, like uh, technology, are to be leveraged to best effect, then it is likely that workers will need relatively high-level knowledge and skills. They must be able to work with new technologies, make complex deals, or, or uh, offer sophisticated services. And any competitive uh, work environment will be subject to continual and often rapid change. The capacity to innovate and respond to these changes requires a workforce that is first willing and able to continue to acquire uh, new knowledge and skills, but crucially have the high-level thinking skills necessary to succeed. So all this workplace change has thrown into sharp relief uh, the effectiveness of our education system in preparing young people for the world of work. Now, I very much doubt whether there's anyone in the room who thinks uh, what I've said so far is, is amazingly insightful or has never heard any of this sort of analysis before. It's not new, and these sort of employment trends uh, were recognized uh, years ago. But it's also not the case that it's only the modern labor market uh, and the success of business that have needed critical thinking skills. We've always needed people uh, who can solve problems, innovate, and challenge assumptions. What we have now is an increasing proportion of jobs that require these skills. 
So the crucial question is whether our education system is preparing all young people, not just some, uh, to be able to be successful. There has, of course, been some good progress in recent years. Schools are now required to develop personal learning and thinking skills amongst their pupils. The quality of work-related learning uh, has certainly improved in recent years. New sector-specific diplomas, for example, uh, have the potential to pe prepare young people better uh, for the world of work. And we must also recognise that traditional academic study and the development of critical thinking and wider employability skills uh, should not be mutually exclusive at all. But it's the business view that the education system needs to catch up faster. Every year the CBI runs uh, an employment trends survey of our members, which gives us a good picture uh, of employer satisfaction with school leavers uh, and graduates' employability skills. Too many firms, 49% last year, uh, said they were concerned about the lack of problem-solving skills uh, in the school leavers they recruit. And this hasn't changed significantly since we started uh, the survey. Even in the good times before the recession, we've seen a stubbornly high proportion of young people uh, not in education, uh, employment or training. We've got to be clear that young people aren't just competing for jobs uh, with those um, uh, from other schools and universities on the other side of the country, but now the other side of the world. The development of employability skills, including uh, critical thinking, must be central to young people's education if they're to have a fulfilling working life. Equally important is that they understand that these skills are valuable and relevant to them after school and are able to articulate that they have them to potential employers. So I hope I've been able to put this debate into a, uh, context of, uh, a wider context from a business perspective. Um, and I guess I recognise I've left the question hanging as to whether uh, business uh, in general believes that young people need or should study a particular qualification uh, in critical thinking or whether it can be effectively embedded uh, in other studies. But I'm sure that's something we'll, we'll come on to later. Thank you very much, Richard. I was about to say, uh, deliberately uh, staying very, very neutral on some of the key questions there. Um, however, uh, we now have Dale Bassett, who is the senior researcher at Reform, which is one of the more modern think tanks. He's been there since 2008. Um, he leads on the think tank's work on education, skills and criminal justice policy, advancing ideas on restoring academic rigour to schools, freeing up the post-18 skills market and reforming the delivery and accountability of policing in England and Wales. He previously worked for a start-up e-commerce company and is a senior level city headhunter. Dale. Thank you very much, Bennett, and thanks to uh, Cambridge Assessment for inviting me here today. Um, I'm, I'm going to be less neutral than you were, Richard, so um, by all means feel, through, feel free to, to throw tomatoes in my direction um, if that should be appropriate. Um, like Richard, um, I'm also not an expert uh, on critical thinking. Um, what I uh, know about is, is policy and I spend uh, an awful lot of time talking to people who are affected by government policy. Uh, including teachers, um, and uh, I, I imagine that those of you in the room who are teachers will probably recognise some of the issues that I'm going to talk about today. Um, Beth talked about um, critical thinking having been squeezed out of other subjects um, and A-levels not providing the right vehicle for teaching critical thinking skills, um, and I think that's really at the heart of the problem that we have. Uh, curricula and exams have entirely lost critical thinking as a central element of teaching and learning. 
As a result, I would argue that we've resorted to critical thinking as a separate discipline. But this is the wrong way to solve the problem. It shouldn't and possibly can't be effectively taught as a separate discipline. And instead, we need to make critical thinking and problem solving central to the way that every subject is taught and assessed. Now, there's no question that critical thinking and problem solving are extremely important, and um, as Richard alluded to, uh, this is just sort of the reality of the 21st century economy and society. Um, the Leach Review of Skills projected a 50% increase in the share of highly skilled occupations uh, by 2020. Um, and as we've heard, employers uh, want thinking skills. Um, they want the foundations on which they can build. They can add specific training, but they need that basis there in order to be able to do so. Um, it's also just the truth about the economy that we're going to find ourselves in over the next 50 years and um, probably accelerated by the recession that we, we may or may not just have come out of. Um, there, there just aren't uh, any more jobs for life. It's no longer the case that we have this sort of carriage clock syndrome of training for a particular job, doing it for 40 years and then, re uh, uh, and then retiring. Um, people are increasingly going to need to change um, jobs, increasingly going to need to change careers. Um, and we need to make sure that young people have the basic toolkit that will enable them to reskill in the future. Now, our research into A-level and GCSE exams um, has featured analysis by leading academics uh, across uh, the core subjects and uh, also comparing English exams, both with their past incarnations and their international equivalents. And what that analysis has shown is that critical thinking has largely been lost through prescriptive, restrictive exams that don't allow room to think, with questions that are based on process and that reward application instead of being based on knowledge and rewarding reasoning. And in a lot of cases, uh, the superficial content has been retained, but the core of the exam has really been hollowed out. Um, this sort of takes two different forms. Um, in the maths and, uh, and sciences, it's primarily a case of prescriptive questions um, and students being often led through questions in very small steps that prevent them from sort of looking at a problem as a whole and trying to figure out the best way of going about solving it. Uh, one, of the, one of the academics we've worked with, uh, Professor Rosemary Bailey from Queen Mary, um, said, said the following, uh, sitting a mathematics A-level paper now is more like using a sat-nav system than reading a map. If you read a map to get from A to B, you remember the route and learn about other things on the way. If you use a sat-nav, you do neither of those things. Um, in the arts and humanities, uh, we've identified a slightly different problem, um, which is largely around prescriptive mark schemes. Um, directed questions encourage students to respond in a certain way, and assessment objectives determine what markers are and aren't allowed to reward. Now, these over-prescriptive exams are encouraging teaching to the test, and in particular, removing the incentive for the student or the teacher to develop higher-level abilities. Um, if anything, thinking outside the box is likely to decrease your marks on a typical A-level paper rather than increase them. Um, and so we've seen the development of, of critical thinking as a separate discipline. Um, now, first, I, I'd like to question what I see as this slightly specious distinction between critical thinking, problem solving, and even creativity. Um, I, I, I think we're fundamentally talking about um, similar and related 
higher level cognitive skills, um, which all involve learning how to reason and how to express oneself. Um, this, is, as we've heard from Richard, is what employers want. These are the skills that people are going to need. Structuring arguments, writing essays, solving problems, analysing texts. Um, now, I would argue that critical thinking shouldn't be taught in isolation, um, primarily for the reason that you can't learn other subjects properly unless you learn them in a way that has critical thinking at its heart. So critical thinking as a separate discipline is really something of a sticking plaster, and it does have some effect, but is ultimately trying to deal with the symptom instead of resolving the underlying cause. Um, moreover, uh, I, I think there is some evidence to suggest that critical thinking can't be taught properly in isolation. Uh, if you look at the skills described in the Cambridge Assessment Definition and Taxonomy, for example, um, these skills are really at the heart of academic study itself, to be interwoven with subject content, not just something that you can sort of layer on top. Um, the, the idea that you can transmit skills without knowledge is, I would say, a fundamental misunderstanding of the way that education works. Um, th there's also a couple of sort of practical implications, and teaching critical thinking as a separate discipline creates the danger, um, as shown in some of the feedback from teachers in, in Beth's recent paper, um, that students will see critical thinking in an instrumental way or focus really on passing the exam, and that the real benefits of using these skills across subjects and in every element of learning will be missed. Um, there, there is also some evidence, and um, Steve, I, I'd like to see very much the evidence that you referred to, um, but equally there's evidence on the other side, both empirical and from educational psychologists, to suggest that the problem with teaching any kind of thinking skills in isolation is the transfer from the abstract. Um, Subject-based platforms, however, um, have been proven to work. Um, in particular, um, I draw your attention to Michael Scheer and Philip Aidey's work um, on cognitive acceleration. Um, and higher-level cognitive skills cross subject boundaries, and sharing AD's programs lead to improved results not only uh, in the subject through which uh, the cognitive skills are taught, but also across subjects. Um, so I think it's clear that the thread through subject knowledge and creative thinking has been eroded, and that the assessment-driven approach and obsession with weighing the pig uh, is inhibiting critical thinking and creativity. It shouldn't matter whether you're studying English, maths, a science, a language, or a humanity. Critical thinking skills can and should be central to the way in which it is taught and assessed. And the benefits will go across subjects. Um, at Reform, what we've proposed is a radical shake-up of exams. Um, we want to see more intellectual rigour. We want to see less prescriptive questions. Um, trusting markers to actually mark um, would be an important step forward. Uh, reversing changes like modularisation, which encourage teaching to the test. Um, and most importantly of all, giving teachers and students the freedom and incentive to learn to think. Uh, and our proposed mechanism for doing this, which I'd be very interested in your thoughts on, um, is to give university subject specialist teachers, uh, subject specialist academics, um, a much greater role, effectively sort of putting them in charge or giving them a kind of quality assurance role um, over the exams at a Saturday level. Um, I think that by doing this, we can reverse the decline uh, that we've seen and put critical thinking back at the heart of teaching, learning and assessment. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dale. Uh, I'm surprised it took so long to get Ed, somebody to mention Shea's work, but there we are. Um, 
Right, ladies and gentlemen, I think we've pretty well covered much of the ground on those four presentations. I think you'll agree we've, they've given us much to think about. Um, would anybody like to start? As I say, uh, we, could, we could perhaps start with a couple of questions, but statements, one's own personal feelings, where you're coming from. Sir. Hi, I'm Nigel Mark from Barnet College. I just wanted to cheer at the end of uh, Dale's speech because before he started, I'd written in my own notes the qualification environment is increasingly hostile to thinking skills, was over bureaucratised, target driven, fragmented, obsessed with uh, reliability over validity, um, and, and you know, very depressing to deal with. Uh, you know, some of the subjects I teach, we do train them to get through the exam. And I have to say, rather sadly, having taught OCR critical thinking, I found that the same experience teaching critical thinking as well. So, just one other one, sorry. Um, I've just whispered in my head, which is very different from my experience of teaching um, theories of knowledge in the IB. Right, okay, thank you. Sir? Thanks, everyone. I wonder what people think about a sort of um, third, perhaps middle, middle way between uh, discrete and uh, cross curricular teaching of critical thinking, it's something that I'm trying to develop. Um, uh, I'm not uh, uh, totally successful at the moment because it's blowing uh, against the window, but the, uh, the discrete tradition of critical thinking skills, coupled with the cross curricular assessment of those skills. I think um, that um, allows for many of the, the benefits that you quite correctly, Dan, quite correctly pointed to in his uh, uh, very interesting talk. But also allows us to deal with issues uh, like the fact that teachers are not necessarily uh, skilled uh, to critical thinking skills at a great uh, level of detail across the curriculum. Um, don't want to do that, don't sit upon a remit wrongly, I think, but, uh, uh, and so on. Um, that's not right. <coughs> So, so are, you, are you suggesting sort of separate lessons or subsets within... No, I'm suggesting I mean, a discrete critical thinking tuition, but uh, to, uh, to uh, make sure that uh, critical thinking skills are very much um, included within the assessment criteria uh, in all subjects. Right. Okay. okay. The lady with the green jumper. Green, I think. Amanda Seelman from Arc Schools. Um, First of all, to Dale, um, just to let you know that I've been on the Richard Sykes review group that's been looking at assessment, and I sent the final report to Michael Gove today with some recommendations that are very much along the lines that you just outlined, so I think we'll be in the same place. Um, several points seem to jump out of what's been said. Um, first of all, to Steve Higgins, you were talking about both reasoning and values. Um, I, would, I wonder whether you're sort of being a little bit PC talking about values, because it seems to be part of the need for this is that we've got a national curriculum which has become increasingly loaded with values-based education um, at the expense of reasoning, and this is, this is a, a necessary counterweight. Everywhere I look through the curriculum in relation to our academies, I find a, a need to put reasoning back in where values are sort of very fully represented. But the three points, I'm sorry, popping up two other points. One is, I think, the question around certification really needs discussing, because if certification is a disincentive for pupils, then are we perhaps talking about something that is very important as part of the curriculum, but perhaps might be better not certified? Um, I know that's not a particularly appealing position for Cambridge Assessment, but 
rips and with apologies to, to, to you, but it seems to me a real, a real possibility. Um, and more generally, it seems to me that there should be much more room in schools for stuff to be in the curriculum without necessarily needing a certificate at the end of it. And the other point, to come back to what Dale Bassett was saying, bearing in mind that we allow so much divergence of pathways um, post-16, and we can have people who are destined potentially for quite similar places ultimately doing completely non-overlapping courses, it seems to me that rather than trying to make sure that the same sort of approach to critical thinking gets embedded in every A-level, whether it's music or physics or whatever it may happen to be, and have people doing it over and over again in the context of three or four different subjects, it may actually, there may actually be a logic to pulling out these skills and, and having a, a course that everybody does in the sixth form, irrespective of which subject um, permutation they may have chosen. A gentleman right down the front, please, far right hand side. Um, Peter Davis, the Policy Consortium. Um, just, just first a, a question. Could it be that the um, improved performance apart from those who've uh, taken um, critical thinking AS level compared with a, a matching group uh, could be connected with the fact that the, the people who uh, opt for critical thinking have a certain disposition in that direction to begin with, building on the point that was, was made. Um, and just secondly, an observation, since we are talking about critical thinking today, um, that as far as um, it appears to me, uh, most senior educational and labour market researchers feel the Leach Review was fatally flawed in its assumptions about the links between skills and the labour market. Um, very clear point. Is to, to, would you like to pick up, anyone if you'd like to pick up on the, the dispositions? I mean, that's, a, that's, that's an interesting thing. Did the research tell you anything in that sense? Were, were people just dumped in classes, or what did they...? I think um, we, we, it's not possible in the data to control for disposition. Um, that, that, that's, absolutely true. that's absolutely true to say. I'm a supporter of critical thinking, and I think it probably has an effect, but it, I could see how the research design might be criticised from that point of view. Yeah. Particularly since yeah. it, it, it's basically the teachers yeah. that encourage students to take, and if the teachers are encouraging the students that want to do it and have the disposition to do it, they are likely mm. to be. But then the same would not, would not also be true of history, science. Yeah, that's a complex point to get over, isn't it, research design? I mean, unless we could sort of, you know, have a sort of fancy experiment where we make some people take critical thinking and compare <laughs> them with, 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 with um, others that we disallow it, then it's, it's not possible to completely tease those out. That, that's true to say. I think we might move into an ethical dimension of that one. <laughs> Anybody else? Uh, sir, right. uh, in the middle, please. First, David Gould from the University of Vienna. Um, I come from a different world, uh, originally from Cambridge, but um, I'm not an educationist. I'm a barrister, uh, but I teach law in Vienna, and I teach critical thinking to law, mainly graduates, doctoral students, and the like. So I am surprised to hear the debate limited to pre-tertiary education. Uh, the courses we run in Vienna are two semesters, which is the equivalent of an academic year, 
and they are oversubscribed five times uh, because we limit the numbers. Uh, and that indicates that there's not only uh, a need, but the students are aware of the benefits. Um, I just wanted to comment on another point. That in listening to you talking about the relationship between skills and education, or job skills, one of the, you might think that you know, qualifying as a lawyer is a, a high-skilled job. But the fact is that low-grade lawyers who work at routine things like undefended divorces will find their job being done in India within the next three to five years. And the same is true with low-level accountants. Unless you can think properly <coughs> and specialise, what was happening in manufacturing in the last 10 years will be happening in the professions as well. I can hire an accountant in India for $100 a month, and he knows Austrian tax law perfectly well, and he can make a tax return. All I need is an Austrian accountant to put his stamp on and send it to the finance act. I think those are my main points. I just wanted to add one other thing which may help you. I don't know. When I first went to live in India, I was a bit shocked because the education system has such a different philosophy. Um, my kids went to the equivalent of a grammar school, um, did classics and so on. But when it came to A-level time, their own teachers set the exam. Yeah? And not every child gets asked the same question. You might get asked Boyle's Law, somebody else gets asked something different. I mean, you don't get a, 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 an English language or an English literature question in a physics exam. It'll all be about physics, but nobody gets the same question. This sounded to me very chaotic when I first heard about it and open to a lot of abuse. But of course, the other thing is that in our universities, um, people are not pre-tested. If you have passed the matura in this way, and it's a very informal way, you are entitled to enrol at university. And you do. Of course, what happens is that we have a high dropout. But in a way, the kids select themselves as they go into their 19, 20 years. Um, some go out and get a job and then come back to university and so on. And I, at first, I was very critical of this system. But having heard more and more how you know, there's discontent about the level of examination and what you're testing and, and the problems with it, I think in a way, life also provides a good test. But those are my comments. And briefly. Thank you, thank you. Now, <laughs> I know we have other people from higher education uh, in the UK in, in the audience. Uh, by all means, please, please come in. I think the, perhaps the reason, sir, why we're focusing on uh, A-level in particular, or GCSE, 14 to 19, is that HE in this country tends to assume that it's being given students who have critical thinking faculties already. Um, and, and I think that's why, why we're starting from that, that end. All my students are postgraduate, yes. doctoral or master's students. So I think it's an assumption to assume that some guy sitting in Clare College really Right. Um, uh, Baroness O'Neill. Uh, Honorable O'Neill, Cambridge University of Philosophy and House of Lords. 
Um, I just want to make the complementary point, which is that I'm very surprised to see critical thinking postponed into the sixth form years. Uh, these are skills that I would have thought traditionally were being taught from age 11 or 12 onwards. Uh, they would be taught through the medium of geometry doing formal proof, through the medium of language teaching with uh, proper grammatical structures, through the medium of the precy. Those are all things that happened before what was O-level and is now vaguely equated with GCSE. I share the point about credentialism running across the landscape. I felt for a while that the assessment tail is wagging the educational dog. But for heaven's sake, why are we waiting for the sixth form for these pretty elementary skills? Um, John Butterworth, um, I'm an examiner in critical thinking, amongst other things. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I'd like to say I agree entirely with the last speaker's comment about starting critical thinking at a much younger age. There is, interestingly, a small clause in the key stage two primary school national curriculum, which says pupils should be able to use inference and deduction. Uh, it says no more than that. It doesn't give any guidance on how those concepts should be taught, but they're there in the curriculum. And if that was done at that age, then a lot of the things that we're talking about trying to teach at A-level would not have to be. Um, but the main point I want to make is I don't... I'm quite surprised to see the embedded or standalone debate still rumbling on. I'm inclined to think it doesn't really matter which of the two courses you take, but I would like to take Dale up on his argument, which was, if I've got it correctly, that if, um, if a, a sticking plaster is required because the job is not being done through the other subjects, the other curriculum subjects, then that is not the right way to do it. It seems to me that a sticking plaster is better than it's not being done. Conversely, if AD and Share are doing the job well, and I would entirely agree that their materials are superb, um, if their job is, if, if they are doing it well, it doesn't mean that equally the job cannot be done as well by a standalone exam. I think we have to be realistic. If you're going to teach it as an embedded subject, you've got to have superb coordination in the school. It can't just be left to each individual teacher to do. And that may be quite unrealistic. And in the meantime, those who have decided to try and teach critical thinking as a standalone subject, with all the failings that it may have, I think it's a lot better than that. Now we're back to quality of teachers, as all discussions like this tend to end up with. Not so much the quality of teachers as the quality of the organisation of the teacher. Thank you. Uh, John Morton, President of Association of School and College Leaders. Well, I'm not doing that as a head teacher. Um, good news for the Baroness O'Neill. Uh, there's an awful lot of work in the lower secondary years in terms of developing thinking skills, personal learning and thinking skills, one of the speakers mentioned, um, the case and care cognitive assessment. Uh, cognitive acceleration work has been done in science and mathematics for many years. It's now starting to have provable evidence at the higher levels. Um, so it is happening lower down, but it's very, very difficult to, to judge the outcome. One thing, I, I, to change the topic though, um, I'm very interested to know, and I, I sit on the board of UCAS, uh, universities don't assume that students have critical thinking skills. They'd love to think they did. Uh, they don't assume they do. Uh, they bemoan the fact they don't have enough, but then universities bemoan all the skills I uh, students have. But um, 
they are very impressed by the new qualification uh, of the extended project. Uh, and that maybe is a better measure of outcome uh, of a school's approach to thinking skills than uh, a critical thinking examination. I wonder whether from the floor or from the platform people have views as to whether the development of the extended project may be something which universally might demonstrate uh, the sort of uh, critical thinking skills universities will need for their undergraduates of the future. I think, I think that's a very good question. Anybody really got any experience of the extended project? Or indeed, of uh, you might use the added um, stretch and challenge in the new A level, as possibly being something like that. Lady far left over here, please. Thank you. I'm Maureen Overdale from Epsom College, and um, I've been teaching critical thinking for a few years now, but I've also recently taken up the new extended project as well, and I've been pioneering that for a few years. And I tell you what, I find works really well is if they are taught critical thinking, and then they can manifest that in the extended project. People who've done critical thinking write a much better extended project than the people who haven't. So I would suggest a new qualification where you have to have both of those things as an A-level. That, that's my first idea. Please, I, don't think, I think we have enough qualifications. Um, or suites of qualifications. The lady on the far right there, please, Faye. Um, I'm head of critical thinking um, at the school, and I did, I'm really interested in the extended projects as a kind of alternative to critical thinking almost because I think that's too narrow in the assessment thing and I mentioned it to my deputy head and she was very um, she wasn't particularly keen on it because of the way it, the, the A-level just seemed a very easy thing to do it fits in with the rest of the curriculum you can teach it, it has a fine exam she, and she was, as I said, quite discouraging of doing it because of fitting it in and um, uh, how to sort of mental the children and things like that so I just wanted to make that point that I it's, I just Not sure if we've got anybody from the DCSF. We certainly, invi certainly invited them. Perhaps they could give us a clue. Just a point of information. Uh, you can get funding for anything if you need it. It doesn't come that way. Mm -hmm. the, the great thing about the extended project is that once you've got the students uh, with, with a sufficient skill base, as you rightly said, um, it, you do them a great service if you teach them or you support them too strongly. The whole thing is they're given set free and we shouldn't worry too much about the process. Uh, it, the fact is they're left to, to look after themselves and occasionally we should stand up to head teachers like me who say it's the qualification grade that matters. They will be better young people for trying and failing on an extended project. Um, as the young man who got my first A star grade did when he, uh, he got an A star grade on the, uh, the effect of 2020 on the purity of cricket, which I was still into. <laughs> <laughs> um. Are we not at this point, are we not raising the spectre of general studies coming, coming round again um, in terms of the, the, the project or indeed in terms of critical thinking? Um, you know, almost anybody is assigned to general studies, almost anybody can teach it and you end up with a very peculiar grade profile, sir, yeah. Strikes me that um, I've always found that many shares in the IB 
but that it has already done a lot of these things we're talking about now. It assesses critical thinking skills through an extended essay. It demands that every student does a series of knowledge course that um, is part of, you know, the only way they can achieve the diploma is to pass a, uh, an essay that they write for that, and they also have to do a presentation. Um, there's no exam at the end of it, so it strikes that balance between kind of accreditation and engaging the students. And I just think it, you know, it, it, it's achieved some of the things that we're talking about being problems. It's also incorporated into each subject they do in the IB as well, the TOK elements. So it seems to have achieved some of the things we're complaining about, being absent in the A-levels. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Helen Eccles from uh, Cambridge International Examinations. Um, just to pick up on that last point, um, we run our preview uh, uh, diploma and examination suite, which also incorporates a research project and a global perspectives, which um, has all the, the ingredients of critical thinking. Um, so these things do exist, and I wonder what the panel's thoughts were about why there hasn't been higher take-up nationally these alternative qualifications to A-levels. That have the critical thinking embedded in them. Uh, Rachel Hunty from Northern St James, and I teach critical thinking and other subjects. Um, I think the other part, I mean, you mentioning about critical thinking not starting earlier. I think quite a few schools teach critical thinking from, formally from 14, but there'll be a number of other ways in which you might introduce it. And also, it's ignoring the whole extracurricular program that schools lay on in the form of debating. Uh, medical societies that discuss ethics. Um, we have an Einstein society. There are lots of other things going on in schools that do develop critical thinking skills in a very untrammeled way. Perhaps, so I think that's another contribution to developing their. Sorry, just before you sit down, is is untrammeled the same way as unstru unstructured? Yeah, well, in the sense that it's not controlled always by teachers. Um, children might generate, you know, it's much freer. They're not working to a syllabus. They can decide what they want to do, and you know, less controlled by um, services, teachers, and that sort of thing. Um, I think it's probably about time we came back to the panel. There have been a number of different points out there. Um, who who would like to deal with one, some, or all of them? Uh, I mean, it's interesting. There seems to be a theme here that that, that the teaching whether formally or informally is a good thing, whether we need an actual um, syllabus, whether we need an actual examination of that syllabus seems to be um, a question mark. It can be a motivator, it might not be a motivator. Um, throw in a project uh, which uses the same sorts of um, pedagogic methods. Uh, anybody want to pick that up? Steve. Uh, I've certainly had to come back on a, a number of points. Um, that, that First of all, just to get people thinking while I'm talking, as a, so you don't concentrate too closely on my arguments. Um, Dale said that critical thinking, if I understood it right, is so important it needs to be embedded in all subjects of the curriculum. And I just got to thinking, would we say the same about mathematics? And if our arguments are different, why are they different? Is it to do with the way we conceptualize the subject? Um, but some of the issues about the importance of mathematics and the curriculum, it seems to me, are similar to some of the issues in critical thinking. So that's kind of uh, I throw out, out there. I, I think the issue around assessment is, is complex. Um, and 
certainly agree with all of the speakers so far who said that, uh, that sort of the damaging nature of credentialism uh, and examinations. Uh, but until we can change the nature of that system, the only way we can move forward is to have an examination or to privilege critical thinking within the system. Because we all know what happens with all of the national curriculum themes that are taught across the curriculum but not assessed. They simply don't really exist in schools. So uh, unless we can seriously change the nature of the assessment regime in academic language, but the nature of the assessment system, it locks in place what it's possible to do in schools. So that strikes me as a kind of a sine qua non that we must tackle first. And if we can't do anything about that, which is kind of my pragmatic position at the moment, then I'd argue for the sticking plaster approach because it's better than uh, uh, it not being there at all. Um, the other uh, question I, I guess I was challenged on I'd like to pick up was values, um, values and logic. Yes, I, I guess for me the difference is between meaningful values that are meaningful to the individual and PC values that are kind of enshrined in the nature of the documentation surrounding schooling. Uh, and I'm interested in the relationship between logic and values that are meaningful to the individual because you can't apply logic to values that you don't hold yourself, I think, easily. They need to have some relation to the way you understand them. But, okay. Richard? Uh, well, perhaps I can pick up the point around uh, uh, higher education as well. I think, uh, to the microphone, if you will. Uh, I mean, we have um, a lot of engagement with, with universities in the country. I think um, if you talk to our members, then they would express similar concerns around the skills that graduates leave university with. Uh, similarly with, with school leavers they recruit. I think uh, our survey showed that around uh, one in five companies are of concern with graduates um, problem solving skills as well. Um, and I think universities are starting to recognise that. I think if you look across the country then many universities are putting on explicit employability modules, problem solving modules um, for, for their undergraduates. So I think there's a recognition there that universities have to do more because that's what's being demanded by students because students understand that's well, they're getting better at understanding that that's going to be important to them um, when they're getting a job. Um, so you know, I think it's you know, plays the whole of the education system, not just not just the 14 to 19 um, side of things. Sorry, if I can just pick you up on that because um, we've had had this with the CBI before. Um, are you thinking that businessmen, by and large, are using either A levels or um, degrees as a proxy, possibly wrongly? for a certain set of skills. So a businessman will sit there and say, right, they have a degree in X from a good university or whatever it is you want to call it, um, therefore they can think. Is that, is, that, is, is that where they're coming from? And is that not then a case for saying, I have a critical thinking A-level that uh, tells you I can think? I think there's a real expectation that if someone's been to university, for example, then they should be good critical thinkers. I think uh, the reality is a lot of employers find that's, that's not the case. Um, but <laughs> Okay, so they are using it as a proxy. Right, Dale. Uh, thank you. Um, just to pick up on the, the point of this gentleman here and, and Steve, um, I mean, I, I suppose I'm not... Uh, my, my point isn't really to argue against critical thinking A-level in itself so much as to argue for all the other A-levels to be critical thinking. Um, I, I, I think it sort of comes back to this central point that at the moment... Um, the content of the curriculum and exams in the majority of academic A-level subjects um, just aren't um, in, in any way, shape or form based enough around 
thinking, um, which, which surely, well, which I'm sure we'd all agree um, is, is, you know, is important. I mean, no one is going to argue that history A level should just be about learning dates and names of kings. Um, but uh, you know, the, the way in which it's currently structured makes it extremely difficult um, for, for students to, and teachers to break out of um, an extremely narrowly defined way um, of treating particular types of questions. Um, to the extent that then, um, you know, if you speak to history academics um, who teach first-year undergraduates in universities, um, top right down to bottom in terms of the university rankings, right across the board, um, they, they'll just tell me that they are absolutely astounded at the proportion of undergraduates who turn up, often with very good grades at A-level, who literally <coughs> can't write an essay. Um, and the first week they turn up at tutorials and you know, sort of try to dig through this massive text that's been submitted. Um, and, I mean, often don't have even more fundamental skills like just sort of spelling and grammar, but certainly in a large number of cases, really there is absolutely no sort of argument that's been articulated at all. Um, now, perhaps critical thinking A-level can help to deal with that to some extent, but I'd say that if history A-level or English A-level or uh, an A-level in the <coughs> sciences um, isn't doing that itself, then there's something really fundamentally wrong with how those A-levels are constituted that we need to look at. Um, th this point has cropped up numerous times about, about the assessment focus um, and, uh, as, as Baroness O'Neill said, sort of the... Um, the, the tail of assessment wagging the dog of education, um, which I think is at the heart of, of all of these problems. Um, what, what does that mean in terms of whether you need to have a critical thinking exam in order to get schools to teach it? Well, no, I don't think you do. Um, I think that you just need to have a system in which schools won't be penalised for taking time out of uh, teaching a, a subject in the very narrow sense in which it generally currently applies to actually develop these more general skills. Um, if students are actually going to be rewarded for critical thinking in their history A level, then perhaps their history teacher might actually spend a little bit of time in class um, developing those skills for them. Um, I also just briefly like to come up on, on Helen's point, because I was about to mention the pre-U as well. Um, and yeah, I, I think, Sarah, also you're absolutely right. The, uh, the IB and the pre-U um, are, generally speaking, better than A-levels in, in this respect particularly. Um, and I think the point that you draw attention to that actually um, they're also much better at um, incorporating these kinds of skills into the subjects themselves as well as, for example, a theory of knowledge module um, could perhaps serve as a, as a model for how we could look to reform A-levels. Beth, just, just before I come to you, can I just pick up on that? Um, Beth's research uh, showed us that practically everybody who does critical thinking does it as a second or indeed third choice subject. That means that all of you in the audience who are critical thinking teachers are presumably have taught or are teaching other A-levels. I'd uh, be quite interested in coming to you and asking whether you recognise that picture of A-levels that Dale has, has pictured. So really, I'm asking for your motivation for coming into critical thinking. Is it because you can't do it in your subject? Or is it because, uh, for some other reason? Beth, do you want to just finish off that little round yeah. robin? Yeah, thank you. And then we'll go to the lady in the middle on the right-hand side. Um, in, in the critical thinking in schools research, um, it was quite interesting. A lot of teachers' remarks upon how they had become more upskilled as teachers in their main subjects by having taught critical thinking. So they took their critical thinking toolkit, if you like, and transported it into history, math, science, English, etc. And, and they, they felt that benefited their teaching and the learning of the, of the children in their classes. So I think that, that's, that's quite um, 
you know, an interesting collateral benefit that teachers themselves need a kind of explicit um, time to get to grips with critical thinking outside of their own subjects, possibly. Sounds to me like we're having a debate on TDA. Yes. Uh, hi, Vicky Edison from Clifford School in Surrey. I'm gifting time to coordinate trials to teach languages on critical thinking. And I would like to say how deeply frustrating it is um, from my department and from myself that new specifications that have come out, the GCSEs and the new A levels, that actually squeeze out thinking skills in, in just the way that our panelists have been talking. Um, and in fact, GCSE MFL in particular is, is purely based on memorised language. They're testing memorised language, not creativity in any which way. And in fact, we would really welcome the proposal that Dale put forward that university academics actually get involved in writing these specifications. And in fact, sometimes we wonder if one of these writing specifications and what are their motivations. It, it's very frustrating. Yes, that would be not necessarily picking up on that because I was trying to remember what I wanted to say, but uh, I'm Kay Mead from Queen Mary's uh, Sixth College in Basingstoke. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, you do need to hold slightly closer to your mouth. Okay. Um, I worked in insurance and I taught languages, and now I primarily work as head of critical thinking, so I'm an example really of uh, what Richard says is happening today. You know, you don't have a long career for life, and that's certainly the case for lots of women already. Um, I wanted to pick up on a colleague's point about the extended project and, and critical thinking AS because I think we were seeing them as either or at one point. I think the extended project is fantastic. At our college, we um, encourage students to do the AS in the lower six, ASCT in the lower six, then the extended project following on from that. I do think that if they just do the extended project, there's a danger that they do it without those skills. Um, if we haven't taught them explicitly, to consider credibility, plausibility, to question evidence, to question reasoning and so on. I don't think those things automatically happen through the extended project system. Um, I also wanted to um, mention about higher education. We're finding increasingly that um, universities are seeing it as a good extra thing for the able students to do, but also um, a lot of the second-tier students, if you like, the ones that are going to universities that make points offers um, and are going to be doing very useful courses of, often, um, are getting offers that include critical thinking, uh, even at A-level, uh, the second year as well. Thank you. Oh, and I just want to say I agree with loads of what Dale said, but, you know, we're at the cold face, we have to use the tools we've got. Right. Does anybody else want to pick up on, on, on any of those, any, any one of the six or seven hairs we've set running? <laughs> on anything in particular? I'm still waiting to hear from people who love their subject and only seeing CT as a side issue. Yes, madam. Possibly not this lady, but... Um, no, no, I'm going to talk about that because I actually am a primary chemistry teacher. And I took up the teaching of critical thinking because I was so frustrated by the lack of reasoning that is now demanded in chemistry. 15, 20 years ago, they had to do a chain of reasoning, A to B to C to C, possibly 10, 10 links in the reasoning to get to the answer. Now it's question, answer, question, answer, question. It's just not there anymore. So, so I do think there's a huge need within the subject for more critical thinking skills. I, I find that fascinating because if that is the case, Looking at the research that Beth has done here, which shows that 
there is an impact of doing critical thinking on other subjects. If the critical thinking has been taken out of those other subjects, how can there be an impact? Um, I, I can answer some of that if you like, because in chemistry I can see my critical thinkers are able to do better reasoning than the people who have me. So there is definitely an impact, I see it. Um, I've been doing it for a while now. So I, I do think even though we're teaching it separately, I can, I can incorporate into the, into the chemistry that I teach, and I do. And I'll say, well, if you were taught critical thinking, you would know that you have to do this. So I'm frequently labouring that by chemistry. <laughs> Yes, the lady in front again. Uh, it's a slightly off point, but I just wondered if it's to do with the society in which I'm just a lot of the people I teach don't read the paper. Don't know whether the guardians are sort of right-wing paper or left-wing paper or whatever. And that they'll get news very quickly, very short bits of news. And that whether critical thinking is a result of um, a generation that aren't used to sitting around a table discussing things over meals and that sort of thing, whether in this society we need something that specifically educates them in those skills because they're not getting it, you know, it's not part of their lifestyle. Uh, fair, fair point, lady there. Bennett, the point you just raised about why if reasoning's been rather stripped out of um, examinations, a critical thinking course might nonetheless help. Perhaps it makes people more self-correcting, that makes them more likely to spot mistakes in their own even elementary reasoning, so less likely to, to fall, fall down even on simple one-stage problem-solving. Beth, any, anything in the research that tells us that or not? Um, there's, there's nothing specific, but, but obviously, you know, if, that, if the research does hold, hold true that... They, the, the children transfer critical thinking to their other subjects. Those subjects must in some way be measuring an aspect of reasoning, whether it's one step or multi-step. Um, you know, I, 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 could, I couldn't say. But I think most A-levels at some point contain multi-step reasoning in, the, in their assessments, or certainly in the process of learning it. They must, you know... Students must have gone, had to go through some reasoning processes, even if it's not as di directly as assessed as some people would like. Can I just come in? Yes. Um, yes. Just like to pick that up, because uh, part of my explanation there would be the process of making uh, aspects of thinking explicit through critical thinking enables learners to be more metacognitive and, as a result, more likely to be able to self-correct. So I, I think there possibly is an explanation. I can't prove that from the existing research, but I think it's likely. But that then comes, in a sense, to a, to a circular argument. Why, in that sense, did not history in its heyday, uh, or Latin, which is a classic, certainly held out that, um, the promise of, of, of critical thinking, why did doing those subjects not have a similar kind of impact? If it was, it was, in, if it was embedded in everything in this, in this golden age we're all looking back to. Um, it's to do with explicitness, I think how explicit it is within the subjects and how explicit it is within critical thinking. And therefore this gentleman's comment right at the very beginning that if you taught it explicitly, you would get all the benefits without actually needing to take a, a, an examination in it, as I understand you all. Yeah, I'm quite happy to take the examination as well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the one taking it, are you? <laughs> uh, yes, at, at the back. Uh, my name's uh, Steve Fitzgerald. I teach critical thinking at Portsmouth College. Um, it's uh, a city that has traditionally a very low GCSE score. We have a lot of students that take it. And I was just been considering for a while looking at the 
the title behind you there about its role, its value and its impact. And I was thinking about the, the impact and the value that it has for my students. And it's, I guess, anecdotal, but I've been teaching it for nine years. I train as a sociology teacher. Critical thinking is the only subject I now teach, and I love it. And I'm very aware that I'm going to speak from a huge vested interest of critical thinking as well. However, the value that it seems to have for my students is that they see that they're being taught something very different and they actually feel that they're learning something very different and they're, they're actually learning in a way that's different from the learning that's going on in their other subjects when they take them at the college. And they feel that they're being equipped with something that the other students aren't being equipped with when they come to the college. And again, anecdotally, they feel that they do better at their other subjects um, and also um, when they take it, when they're three subjects um, and they apply to university, I've never had a student in five years who's been turned down on the basis of critical thinking being one of their three main choices, not as an additional fourth. So in whatever form it exists, it needs to continue to exist and it needs to continue to increase its credibility. Thank you for that. Um, back down Thank you. Uh, Johnny Franks from Wickham Abbey School. Uh, I teach critical thinking, but my first subject is philosophy and religious studies, and I'd echo what the previous speaker said. The uh, students who take critical thinking use it to, to a great degree at A-level in philosophy and religious studies, analysing analogies and, and, and things like that, um, and they find it very useful, and I think I've become a better teacher as a result of teaching critical thinking in my religious studies lessons because I use some of the skills there as well. Um, I'd also like to make a second point, um, which is that Rich and Dale both mentioned um, problem-solving as being a particularly um, important part of, of, of business. Um, if I read your paper correctly, Beth, you uh, saw problem-solving being on the fringes of critical thinking. I wondered whether um, there's something to be resolved there and, and what exactly problem-solving is, whether it's part of critical thinking, because I teach OCR AS level and I don't think it does problem-solving uh, particularly well. It does analysis of arguments well. Yes, I, I stand here as, a, as a, an amateur thinking that forming well-reasoned judgments and decisions is problem-solving, but I dare say Beth is going to tell me it isn't. Um, I think, I think in, in the way that we envisaged critical thinking when we were doing the definition and taxonomy, we saw problem-solving as lying outside that definition. It's closely related, um, and there's, there's often... Um, sort of analogous processes that people go through in problem solving compared to critical thinking. But there are, there are clear differences. I mean, problem solving can be, um, it's much more to do with um, complexes of information and data. It's often very much more data-based. Um, and, and so they're related. They're both higher-order thinking skills, but they're not the same. They're not the same. Critical thinking typically deals much more with a sort of central focus on arguments, I hope. That sort of clarifies. Well, that's whether you think business is actually run by argument or data, of course. <laughs> I won't ask uh, Richard that, just in case he gets the answer wrong for the members. Can I, can I just say, say one more thing? In, um, OCR's piloting a level two qualification in thinking and reasoning skills, and that contains a blend of um, critical thinking and problem solving. Um, and I think it's got a very, very interesting syllabus and very interesting assessments. And is likely to raise the same questions as doing it at A level. Um, I, I think it will raise different questions. <laughs> as a standalone. Well. Yes, sir. Um, Peter Davis, Policy Consortium, uh, again. Um, I, I, I feel moved to 
just say something, since a lot of the discussion has been about uh, education and the needs in the education system, and a lot of what's been said I'm most sympathetic towards, but I, I feel there should be some further qualifying points about the operation of the labour market in all this. I, I, I don't think it's just a shortage of critical thinking skills that has led to changes in, in jobs in society. Uh, it strikes me very forcibly that in terms of my dealings with uh, banks, people who are paid at about the same level who uh, today is that, um, and are in the same kind of junior middle management levels um, show uh, an almost total absence of critical thinking ability compared with those same people 20 years ago. Uh, it, it is very difficult to have a dialogue with someone in a, in a bank I've found these days, even though I, I, I would say, for instance, like online banking services are absolutely wonderful in many respects, so not knocking them totally. Equally, in terms of the media, if you look at the content of serious documentaries on, say, BBC Two, uh, you compare the, the, the content of, say, the Great War series in the 1960s with, say, the documentary that was shown last week, one of four, on the British Navy. Um, the British Navy programme was 50% longer than each episode of the, the Great War, and each episode of that conveyed convey less information. In uh, a let and made less demands on its audience. So, so, so it's not just, uh, I think, that what's coming out of the education system, it's to do with the way uh, society and the job market has changed and, and what's demanded of people as well. So, does that sort of necessarily mean that uh, Dale here is a canoe standing against the tide? This is the direction we're going in, the lack of trust, tick box mentality. Uh, and the only way we can actually get out of an increasingly narrowing sense of, uh, of, of, of education is to invent specific subsets of education that deliver what we think is education. That wasn't necessarily directed at you, but you, was, you could start. I mean, I think, I think it's a very complex um, problem. But, I mean, I mean, people like John Humphreys weren't you know, aren't a victim of the modern education system, by any means. And it seems to me that uh, his style of interview is, is less about engagement and critical thinking than the same style of interview would have been 30 years ago on, on the equivalent uh, programme. Um, if, if you listen, as I have great joy in doing to the kind of 606 footy phone in, it's a kind of... Uh, critical thinking free zone for <laughs> two hours and a great joy it is in some respects but we have also lost of course the, the deference that people would have shown then yes, yes. but that is also part of the, the, the challenge we face here there is no deference faced towards a senior examiner, he can be challenged as well as a junior examiner so you make ever more precise box schemes it, it tends to go around in a great big circle but I did say we weren't going to talk about individual specifications from Vienna <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to come back on, on that point. I think there is a parallel development, again, anecdotally, about my family. My son studied medicine very broadly and progressively now in education. And he progressively, he has become more and more specialised. He became a haematologist, then he developed um, skills in children's cancer, and now he deals with one specific cancer. Um, at Great Ormond Street, and he sees 140 kids a year who have that cancer, and that's the only people he sees. So his 
band of knowledge has got narrower and narrower and narrower, got more and more special. But is, this, is that not what we expect to happen, which is why we set out, why we set out to give students at 16 and 18 the widest possible that we can conceive, the widest possible education, because we know they're going to become more specialised. Absolutely. But I think this is happening more and more in our side. This is why, this is what my classics teacher told me. Learn Latin and Greek and you can do anything. You can do anything, yeah. Exactly. Not <laughs> right. Um, unless anybody has a burning desire to add in, um, what I'd like to do is to sort of start the, 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 the sort of end process. And I thought we would start with a film that we were going to show at the beginning, um, if I can find it. Uh, and actually, this is, this is like this because what I actually want to happen is for our guests to think very carefully about how they're going to use their two minutes to respond to, or indeed start, a whole new approach. I'm Colin Hamilton. I'm head of ICT at William Ellis School. Hi, I'm Peter Jarmy. I'm the head of social science department at Wanstead High School. Um, and I teach sociology and critical thinking. I'm Andrew Roberts. I'm the Director of Studies at Abbey College, Cambridge. I also teach mathematics and critical thinking. My name is Dr Cindy Wells. I'm a mathematics teacher at Chesterton Community College, which is a secondary school. The children are aged 11 to 16. And critical thinking I teach as an extracurricular subject. So it's after school and voluntary for the Year 11s here to come to. I became aware of critical thinking as a subject only about four years ago and I was immediately inspired by the value that it could bring to students because I'd been very aware previously as to how students weren't picking up the skills they needed to access their A-levels. They could do the knowledge and understanding but they couldn't do the other skills that went with it such as analysing and evaluating arguments. Um, and so I persuaded the head teacher to allow me to introduce it to a small group of sixth formers. And the first year we had just nine students, and subsequently we've now got three groups of about 20 students altogether. I think the advantage of having critical thinking as a separate subject is it allows you to just have discussions about topical events and things like that outside of having to worry about a particular curriculum that you're teaching. I, th I think there's probably places for critical thinking in both embedded within subjects and as a subject on its own. And I would like to think that I build critical thinking skills into my maths lessons as much as I teach them in critical thinking lessons as such. I started teaching critical thinking. It was a bit of an accident, really. Uh, there was a visiting teacher from one of our local sixth form colleges who was visiting secondary schools to try and tell us what critical thinking was all about. And I went along to the classes and studied it myself for the first year and took the exams myself at the end of the year. Uh, and by that point, I was hooked. So I decided I'd carry it on. So for the few years after that, so this is now my fifth year of teaching critical thinking uh, to AS level. I think... Critical thinking is vital. The more students take critical thinking, the better that student will be. The more they'll know about themselves, the more they'll know about what examiners want, what other people want, how to read a newspaper, how to read the small print, how to understand what's going on around them all the time. Critical thinking is a key skill, really, that everybody needs.
not just if they're going into further education, but just for everyday life. We're all bombarded with lots of information. We've got to decide which of it is important and which of it is not reasoned as well as perhaps it should be. Critical thinking definitely improves their confidence as well. They become much more able to put into words what it is they really want to be able to say, and therefore they can see them grow in confidence over the weeks, that they can get their point across, and that they start to realise exactly what they need to say to convince somebody of something. And the interactions are fantastic between the students. To start with, they tend to be a bit silly and they start to sort of poke fun at each other and say, oh, you can't say that because that's silly. And by the end of it, they're taking each other very seriously. My name's Sarah Bass and I'm a Year 12 student at Wanstead High School. Um, I'm taking psychology, maths, classics, critical thinking and biology. My name's Scarlett Devey. I'm in Year 12 at Wanstead High School. I'm taking biology, chemistry, maths, English literature and critical thinking. Critical thinking can definitely help outside of um, sixth form. Uh, with being more analytical, for example, when looking at newspaper articles in the news, um, you can evaluate things and understand them on a different level. Um, I definitely think critical thinking does help outside of school. Um, like Sarah said, when you watch the news, read newspaper articles, and also um, in decision-making, such as if I'm going to go to uni or not, how will that benefit me? When I first taught critical thinking, the group gelled really well and we had some very lively debates. And then we had a parents' evening in November. And I said to the, the students that I taught, you know, there's no need to come and see me. We don't do any homework. We don't set any work outside the school. All we've done is really discuss and argue and come to conclusions, I don't need to see your parents. And seven parents came over anyway to see me to say, thanks very much for the critical thinking. My child's really learnt from it. I don't know what you're doing in that classroom, but it's fantastic. Right, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm going to ask our four panellists to just... Well, it's up to them, really. They can either re-deliver their arguments, they can rehearse what it is you've said and, uh, and, and respond, or start a whole new line of arguments so that when you go into coffee, they've got something different to talk about. Um, I'm going to start um, with Beth and go along, along to Dale at the end. Thank you. Um, I have to say I feel very sort of encouraged by the sort of general consensus in the room of the value of critical thinking. Um, I've been particularly interested in the, in the idea of, um, of critical thinking in combination with the extended pro projects. I, I think that's probably quite a powerful uh, mode of delivery. Um, in terms of this sort of whole issue of critical thinking as a sort of sticking plaster, I mean, I do think it's you know, better to have a sticking plaster than an open wound. And, you know, and I think, I think you know, okay, there might be issues about um, credentialising, and I, I can't dispute that, but I think... Critical thinking as an ASA level um, has its introduction, has been the catalyst for the larger scale introduction of critical thinking into UK schools. And I think other attempts to bring thinking skills into schools so far haven't been as effective. Okay, I'd just like to kind of go over the, the, the reasons that have been both explicit and implicit in people's arguments for critical thinking. I mean, starting at, uh, I guess, a 
fairly basic level in terms of it might be pragmatically useful in supporting students in achieving better in, in school um, through to uh, it's needed for economic reasons in order to be successful in a job. Perhaps in a wider sense it's needed so that we can be competitive in a global market. Certainly if you look at education systems like Singapore, they're um, starting to develop and embed um, critical thinking in their curriculum. It might be needed because uh, we need it to bolster lack of critical thinking in other subjects. Or it might be that we need it to compensate for the challenges in wider society in terms of the ability to focus and marshal an argument because of the nature of the way young people engage in education. Um, uh, even if you accept my argument, you need it pragmatically because it works. It just has a beneficial impact in terms of students learning both in and uh, across other subjects. I don't think there's any doubt that we're agreeing that critical thinking is valuable, and after all, who'd want uncritical thinking? But we perhaps need to be a bit clearer about the precise reasons why we think it is valuable, because that will help us marshal our specific arguments for the direction that we want to move it. And the only thing that I'd add as a sort of personal reflection is like the speaker at the front, uh, I have a particular weakness for the IB because I think the way thinking is integrated into both the design of the courses, the way they lock together, and into the complex way that it's assessed means it's difficult to leverage out of that program. It's so thoroughly embedded uh, that you know it's being of value to the students who experience it. No, I think a few brief comments from me. I think um, certainly it's not for business to tell schools and the education system how to teach, but I think it is our role to um, articulate the sort of skills that young people are going to need if they want to be successful in the labour market. And I think perhaps this discussion today has helped um, me think about that and whether we, on the critical thinking problem-solving side, need to do that better, articulate what we need um, better. Um, but I think this discussion and other research I've read starting to persuade me that um, perhaps the outcomes schools are measured on uh, aren't necessarily the right ones um, for delivering the sort of skills that business broadly wants uh, and that the pressures that teachers and schools are under uh, similarly aren't conducive to, to developing the skills uh, that we want to see in our young people. One final comment, I think uh, if we are going to continue to push for a, a standalone qualification in critical thinking, that it's not only universities that we have to convince this is a worthwhile a standalone subject, but also employers, so it does get currency in, in, in the labour market as well. Um, thanks. I, I'd just like to uh, touch in very briefly on, on this um, sort of question of uh, the explicit teaching of, of critical thinking. Um, a number of people uh, amongst the audience this afternoon uh, on the panel and indeed on the video, the prospect that we uh, that we got to see um, have all said uh, that um, you have been able to and have had value from incorporating these ideas of critical thinking into your teaching of uh, into the teaching of, of your other subjects. Um, I, I think that's that's a really important point to take home, and I'd just like to uh, very briefly read out the five processes. Um, in the Cambridge Assessment definition of critical thinking, just to remind us. Analyzing arguments, judging the relevance and significance of information, evaluating claims, inferences, arguments, and explanations, constructing clear and coherent arguments, forming well-reasoned judgments and decisions. Now, whether we're trying to ascertain um, the reality of 
um, what happened in some historical event by considering different sources in a history exam, whether we're trying to interpret Shakespeare in an English literature exam, whether we're trying to um, write a proof in a maths exam, um, I don't see how we can do it without using those skills. Um, so we need to make sure uh, that our education system, that our exams, that our teaching is such that those can become central to, to absolutely everything that we're doing. Um, I would ask Bennett, if, if I may, very briefly, um, the way that my organisation reform works um, is by uh, having a, a dialogue um, very much with people who are at the coalface, and we try to do it uh, in business, in education, with teachers, and, and right across the public services. Um, if you agree with me, if you disagree with me, um, if you'd like to, continu to continue the dialogue, I'd really appreciate it. And if you want to, to come up and, and just give me your email address at the end so we can stay in touch, and that would be really valuable from my perspective. So do feel free. Thank you. With that advertisement, um, which, is, which is fine, which is fine. I'd like to thank everybody for coming. I think it's been quite an interesting debate. We've had five or six different, uh, different strands come out. Um, I am not surprised we have not reached consensus. I wasn't expecting to reach consensus in one simple two-hour seminar. Um, but I think there's, been, there's, there's a lot there to think about. Um, I think what has really, really come out of this is that um, although one automatically assumes that critical thinking everybody agrees with. I think we're much more pragmatic and much more sensible about what we agree about, and I think that is a good thing. Um, it is obvious, I think, that we do need a taxonomy, and I'm going to ask uh, Beth to push ahead with that as fast as she can, um, so we all know what we're talking about. And, of course, over the next year or so, uh, I mean, I know we've been saying this every year for the last five years, ed education is going to be very exciting. This next year, education is going to be very exciting, and it is undoubtedly the case that critical thinking, embedded or standalone, will be playing an important part in the kinds of decisions that people make, and the outcomes of those uh, partly depend upon the critical thinking of those making the decisions. Thank you once again on behalf of Cambridge Assessment. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.